Welcome to The Investigation. I'm Chris Blasto, Senior Executive Producer here at ABC News, and I'm joined here by my colleagues John Santucci, who's one of the lead reporters covering the Trump investigation, along with his colleague Catherine Falders, who's concentrating on Congress and the White House as a reporter on this story. There were a lot of developments this weekend in the impeachment inquiry, especially one big exclusive that appeared on the Sunday show this week with George Stephanopoulos. ABC News has learned that the legal team representing the first whistleblower is now representing a second whistleblower. Attorney Mark Zaid told me that this second whistleblower is a member of the intelligence community with firsthand information on some of the allegations at issue. And the reporter behind the scenes who helped break that story is a member of our team, James Gordon Meek. And he is a specialist in national security issues. James, tell us about the story and what is the significance that there is a second whistleblower? So we, we knew that there was, were probably more than uh, six or seven because the, whistle, the first whistleblower in his complaint to the intelligence community's inspector general, the internal watchdog for all the intelligence agencies in the United States, um, had said that there were more than half a dozen uh, officials who had expressed concerns about uh, the president's dealings with Ukraine and his phone call with the Ukrainian president. So uh, we were told early on that the inspector general, as part of his initial 14-day preliminary review of the allegations, had interviewed multiple witnesses. So that would be presumably the whistleblower, the first one, and uh, other people who uh, had expressed concern to the first whistleblower, if that's not too confusing. But now we have a second whistleblower. And while there's been a big debate about whether the first one had first-hand knowledge or second-hand knowledge, the inspector general clarified that that person had both first-hand and second-hand. This whistleblower, who is now signed on to be represented with the same uh, lawyers, Andrew Bukaj and Mark Zaid, who are very well-known Washington national security lawyers, uh, the second whistleblower has uh, apparently more direct knowledge of these events. How does it push the ball? Because at first, it seemed like a big headline to say that there's a second whistleblower. But as you're just explaining now, this second whistleblower just deflects what the president was trying to say, that the first whistleblower just had secondhand information, right? Well, I think my interpretation is of that what where it pushes the ball forward is that this is a second person who uh, essentially is really sticking their neck out, that they feel strongly enough about this that they have gone and, and retained counsel, the very counsel that the first whistleblower retained or sought out. And of course, this is actually a pro bono case for them. The significance is these are two intelligence officials. These are two people who have spent their careers, we believe, in the intelligence community. So uh, that's quite an extraordinary thing for people to really go out on a limb. Even if they're anonymous, they both realize that their identities could be exposed by people. And do you think this will open the door to the others who are also on the, in that report to come forward as well? I think it sends a really clear message to other people that, you know, come join us in this, uh, in this quest to hold the president accountable. Um, I think, you know, if two people who have both got very competent lawyers who are representing them, who are very successful in their work for many, many years, uh, that, that's a pretty clear signal to other people. Because the thing is, if the inspector general has interviewed other people, by default, legally, they are whistleblowers and they get the protections of federal law to whistleblowers against retaliation. And so uh, they may be asking themselves this morning, do I need somebody to represent my interest to protect me? 
Well, let's talk a little more about that right now because there's a lot of questions about what rights whistleblowers have, don't have throughout this process. We're going to bring in right now Attorney Brad Moss. He specializes uh, in national security, federal employment, and security clearance laws. Thank you for being with us. And I just want to say on the outset, now we know uh, that uh, you work at Mark Zaid uh, PC, if that name sounds familiar. It's because Mark Zaid uh, is one of the lawyers that is a part of the legal team representing now these two whistleblowers. But just to be clear, Brad, you're not involved in that case. There is a Chinese wall between the firm and what Zaid is doing for these two. But we wanted to have you on anyway because you know a lot about this topic. Absolutely. And happy to, happy to help. So this is the biggest thing. If we can actually just go really rewind back to the basics here because you know people over the last couple of days are trying to understand a little more about whistleblowers you know obviously we dealt with this with Snowden and others but for this case right you have now two federal employees that have come forward they've flagged a concern what is that process if I'm a federal employee and I see something that just doesn't seem to pass the smell test for me how would I go about filing a whistleblower complaint Sure. So for pretty much all federal employees, you can always bring your concerns. You can always put something in writing or verbally to the inspector general of the agency at which you work, and it can run it through that process. What we have specifically here with these two sets of of, uh, concerns being raised by these two individuals is through a process called the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act. This was set up in the late 90s because there was a gap in the law with respect to federal employees who dealt specifically and exclusively in classified matters. It was one thing if you're working in agriculture or commerce and you're worried about how someone's, you know, misusing budgetary funds. You know, whoop-de-doo, it's certainly important. It certainly needs to be addressed through the inspector general, but it's not going to implicate classified information. There wasn't necessarily a mechanism set up, though, until the late 90s on people who worked at, say, CIA or the National Security Council or DIA who had concerns about what they had seen in a classified context and wanted to raise those concerns internally and ultimately to the intelligence committees. And there needed to be a mechanism, a process for them to do so lawfully without raising concerns about unauthorized disseminations of classified information. So Congress passed in 1998 the ICWPA, and all it does, it calls itself the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act. That's a bit of a red herring. It just provided a mechanism. It did not itself provide any ultimate protection from administrative retaliation. It simply set up a process where an individual within the IC could go to the inspector general, outline in the complaint what the nature of the concern was. It had to implicate a serious or flagrant abuse of law or executive order with respect to the operation of an intelligence activity. And it explicitly could not encompass what was described as mere differences of opinion on public policy matters, which, if you think about the president, that's going to be a lot of issues. So they really never envisioned that the president would be the individual who against whom the complaint would be raised. So you submit that complaint to the IG. The IG has 14 days. If the IG validates it, then it goes through the DNI to the intelligence committees. The DNI is just the transitory part uh, part of this process. It's UPS picking up the shipment from you and taking it to grandma. Until this incident uh, a couple months ago, there had never been a scenario where the DNI did anything other than route it to the intelligence committees. So what is the difference, Brad, between this whistleblower, what we know publicly, not what you may know privately, and I know you know nothing, but I know less than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference between this whistleblower who has reported what they allege to be misconduct by the president on Ukraine policy and Edward Snowden, the 
NSA contractor who stole millions of pages worth of, of intelligence information that was highly classified and gave it to journalists and leaked it and so forth. What's the difference? Sure. So the distinction is only one of a matter of law. So as a dictionary definition, a whistleblower is anybody who raises a concern as a matter of public interest in order to try to hold government officials accountable. The As a matter of law, though, to uh, be entitled to protection, you have to go through this specific process. So Edward Snowden never went through this kind of process to raise concerns through the inspector general about NSA uh, abuses of intelligence authorities, the idea that the intelligence collection operations we had ongoing were in violation of the Fourth Amendment, were being misused or abused. And there were some, you know, deep within the leaks that he provided back in 2013, there were some instances of abuses. You know, there were guys, you know, checking in on ex-girlfriends and all manner of things, which would have been an abuse of the authorities, which would have been something to raise to the IG. Edward Snowden didn't do that. He just took the documents, handed them to Glenn Greenwald, and I think it was Laura Poitras was her name. That's right. And they eventually, over several months and years, produced it all, or produced a large bulk of it in the Snowden archives. So as a matter of law, he's not entitled to any protections. He didn't go through the process. So he is subject not only to administrative retaliation, his clearances were revoked, and obviously he no longer worked at Booz Allen, but he could be subject to criminal indictments. He could be criminally punished and sentenced and put in jail for unauthorized disseminations of classified information. For the whistleblowers in this context, because they went through the proper process, the DNI is explained in writing, they are protected from retaliation. And that's the point, isn't it? That these people, according to the general counsel of the director of national intelligence, the first whistleblower did everything right and lawfully and in good faith, he said. Correct. And it doesn't matter what comes out of this in the end. It doesn't matter if Congress decides this is or is not something that merits uh, political action against the president. For purposes of the law, the whistleblower did everything right and should be protected. And that is the ultimate purpose of these laws. It's not to reach an ultimate objective, which Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning had in mind. It's to allow these people to come forward, raise their concern in a proper manner, and then go back to work Mm. in an anonymous context. So then when you see the president tweeting that uh, he deserves the right to confront his accuser, right, if he was to take any steps to, you know, smoke this person out, even expose them in some way, maybe we'll wake up one morning to a tweet and there will be the name, would that then be added, if you will, to the list of things that the president could be facing impeachment over? Because that would be a violation of federal law, according to you. Sure. So it would be a violation of federal law for which there's no legal recourse because of his inherent constitutional authority under Article 2. But it would absolutely be something where the political op- options, impeachment or 25th Amendment, come into play. And this is something where the relevant statutes never contemplated a president being the one at issue here, let alone being able to possibly retaliate. All the protections that the DNI has outlined is designed around the idea of subordinate officials to the president taking action. If Donald Trump today were to identify the whistleblower as Joe Smith Mm -hmm. and say, I hereby, as the president, or this person fired and their clearance revoked, there's not a lot in the way of a legal option to get uh, get a remedy there. It's only a political option. So legally, what you're saying is, you know, we we all wake up to a tweet with this person's name. He, the president, could essentially face no consequences as a legal matter. Correct. Very little. If it's, it'd be a constitutionally murky question at best. 
So let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the process now for these whistleblowers. So the original whistleblower that came forward, apparently, uh, as we understand it, they've been in negotiations with Congress to come up uh, and give some type of testimony, assuming uh, this latest person is going to follow that same course of action. How does that work, though, in this ball game? And I know this is a unique scenario, so, so stick with me if you can, that you have six committees in the House, two committees in the Senate that are doing their investigation. Would that mean in theory that this person would have to go up every time a different committee has questions about this issue or because of the sensitivities behind the person coming forward protecting their identity, would we see Congress trying to work and accommodate that individual? How, how do you how does that usually work? So you know, with the understanding that this is unprecedented. Yes, so we're uh, working, absolutely. <laughs> we're working from a making it up as we go along kind of scenario. Um, my assumption my best guess as to how this will work is that there will be some kind of accommodation where the intelligence committees, because they have the facilities set up, their custom, they have the staff to handle this they have type the of gifts, the secure yeah, they, right, they, absolutely to handle this type of information and to keep it in a secure manner would be the ones ultimately responsible for conducting any actual hearings or interviews or deposition, whatever it'll be called, with the whistleblowers. And that the information derived from that can be made available to the members of the other committees in secure spaces in order to limit the exposure, to limit, or to limit the, narrow, the group of people who know who this person is. And so they can't, you know, uh, put it to everybody in Congress having an idea and someone leaking it out to ABC News or to NBC or to Fox. So my colleague and I were, were talking about this the other day uh, on Capitol Hill. And, and again, I realize this is unprecedented. But when you're talking about, you know, drafting articles of impeachment and, and the whistleblower, whistleblowers, plural, um, are essentially witnesses, right, to to impeachment, to impeachment proceedings, to whether to impeach the president. Is there any argument that Republicans can make or that the president can make that because this person is a witness to impeachment that that their name must be public or that they, that identity must be known. I think, and I've seen that argument from the president and some of his allies, I think they're conflating the Sixth Amendment right you'd have in a criminal trial mm -hmm. with what would exist in the Senate trial if there was impeachment. If the president wants to be able to invoke his Sixth Amendment rights to confront his accusers, he can have DOJ rescind the memo saying he can't be indicted and we can try this through the criminal process. I don't think he wants that. In the Senate, the rules are a little different and it's a lot more discretion. So there is no obligation to produce these individuals as witnesses. What has been outlined in writing, what has been validated, if, if it, assuming we get to that point through the House impeachment process, would be more than sufficient. You don't have to have you know cross-examination of witnesses and of the whistleblower because the whistleblower is just a fact witness in the end and whatever they found will have already been memorialized. The IG's findings will be far more comprehensive and far more relevant to any Senate trial. As we you know, sort of watch for the what's next here, right? So we now know that the first one's got a complaint, going to get a date set to Congress. The second one's come forward. In theory, there'll be a complaint from that person, too. If necessary, it's not even necessary, depending on to what extent the information just supplements or corroborates the existing complaint. The IG can determine that a, that an, uh, a separate document in terms of a formal complaint may ultimately be legally unnecessary. But then do we think, though, because the way that this second complaint was contacted by the AG to cooperate, IG to cooperate the initial complaint, 
that would seem to suggest, based on the complaint saying that he spoke to multiple individuals, that there could potentially be more people coming here. Correct. There could be multiple. And it's one of those things, and I think this was mentioned in kind of the lead up in the intro, strength in numbers, basically, that as more people are willing to stick their neck out and basically put their careers on the line here, they'll continue to come out, if only to reinforce that this is an act, factually accurate description of what occurred Whatever Congress chooses to do about it is Congress's deal, and they can have their own prerogatives. But from the standpoint of the individuals who were on the call or who had other firsthand and secondhand knowledge, they want to make sure that the factual record is accurate, and they want to put their neck on the lines to support their colleague or colleagues to make sure that they are all in this together. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Absolutely, not a problem. Coming up, we're going to break down the politics of all this with our team. Welcome back to The Investigation. I'm Chris Vlasto, and I'm joined here by John Santucci, and I'm also joined by our congressional and White House reporter, Catherine Falders. And we're going to discuss the politics of all this and the whistleblower and this new report about the second whistleblower. But I was struck this weekend when I watched both Sunday shows, and I saw George Stephanopoulos' interview with Jim Jordan, and then Chuck Todd's interview with Ron Johnson. And I was shocked at how both men we're standing by the president. Let's listen to them first, and then we'll break it down. Why a Fox News conspiracy propaganda stuff is popping up on here? It, it I is, have no it idea. Is not, that is, I have no that is, idea why we're going exact, here. That is, that is Senator, because I'm this is underlying about, exactly I'm why asking, President Trump is upset and why his supporters are upset right, at the news media. Oh, okay, now, this Chuck, is not about the, the media, here's Senator the deal. Johnson. The, the, the Senator Johnson, please, can we please answer the question that I asked you instead of trying to? Make Donald Trump feel better here that you're not criticizing I'm not, I'm him. Not, I'm, I'm just try, I'm trying, trying to, to ask you a simple question of, of what, made you, what made you wince. Uh, what, what is, I'm asking a simple question about you clearly were upset that somehow there was yes, an implication I, I was, that military was, aid was, was being frozen yes. because the president wanted the, an investigation. Why did you right, wince? The, because I didn't want those connected. And, and I wanted, I was supporting the aid, as is Senator Murphy, as is everybody that went to that initial inauguration. But here's the salient point of why I came forward. When I asked the president about that, he completely denied it. He adamantly denied it. Threshold question. Do you think it's appropriate for President Trump to ask China and Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? George, you, you really think he was serious about thinking that China's going to investigate uh the Biden family. I'm asking if you think it's appropriate for the president to ask China to investigate. I think he's saying what's on the minds of so That's many not Americans. What I'm asking. You're still not answering the question. If the president is asking China to investigate, which he did right there, is that appropriate? I have to go back to this because you still haven't answered the threshold question. Was it right for President Trump to ask China to investigate Joe Biden? Why can't you say yes or no? Because I think, because I'm telling you what he said. I think his point was highlighting that when you're the president of the United States and you see something like this happen, China he knows is not going to investigate. He's just pointing out to the American people what they all what they all think us about. Not to believe what we see with our own eyes, right there. We've been going ten minutes. You still can't say whether you think it's right or wrong. Well, I don't think it's going to happen. That's why. It, that's why. It, I mean, it's just. I just don't think that's what the president was really saying. I tell you, I, I've been in covering Washington politics for almost 30 years, and it's, it was a little bit almost Alice in Wonderland in the sense of why can't Jim Jordan just say, you know what, yeah, that was inappropriate, but it was a joke, or I think if that was true, that's inappropriate, but it was a joke. But he refused 
to even concede that. It, 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 it's almost like this wall is blue. No, it's not. No, no, the wall is blue. I'm looking right at the wall. You really are going to tell me the wall's not blue? Nope, the wall's not blue. It, it, it's fascinating for all of these last couple developments that we've been watching here, um, and now that another whistleblower has come forward, that nobody in the uh, orbit of the president, uh, members of Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate, will come out and condemn him in any way. And you're right. I mean, both Sunday shows were frustrating, and I think you saw that in, in George and Chuck Todd's dealing with both guests, just saying just the simple fact here, how can you not do that? It's also amazing, though, Chris, that they're not alone. Majority of their colleagues are standing in lockstep. There's no daylight right now between the president and Republicans. The only three uh, that have come out in any way, shape, and form, and they're not really a surprising three, are Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Ben Sass, Catherine. Yeah, and I thought what was actually so striking about these two interviews, especially the interview with Jim Jordan, was while these two were defending the president on the Sunday shows, Jordan was asked more than a dozen times uh, by George whether it was appropriate um, to ask uh, Ukraine and China to investigate, and he couldn't answer the question. He refused uh, to answer it, and I think he did kind of try and clarify that after in a tweet saying it's absolutely appropriate for the president to call for rooting out corruption in any country with whom we do business. But the reality was, while he was defending him, he couldn't answer that simple question, John. And I think it's also significant that the White House had nobody on the shows or from House and Senate GOP leadership out there defending the president also. But see, I'll ask something different. I think it's a fair argument Republicans can make, even about the whistleblower phone call, to say that's wrong, but not impeachable, right? That, That could be a fair argument that a Republican can make, but almost none of them are making that. And well, that's what's really stunning to me, because yeah, that I, to save their own face, forget protecting the president. Yeah, it, it, I guess maybe at this point no one's feeling the heat in the way that uh, we would think they would. I mean, look, it, it, I guess the process has uh, only really just begun. We haven't seen uh, any of these uh, high-profile individuals uh, that are involved in any of these issues uh, come forward in a public way. All of these depositions so far are happening behind closed doors. Uh, the most explosive thing we saw thus far was just the text messages uh, that Kurt Volker, uh, the former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine, uh, released. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it, it is stunning. But I, I sort of think, I, I mean, you know, I think this is more a marathon than a sprint. And I just think that it will be a matter of time, you would think, until they're actually able to come out and say, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, look, and I think the president also has a, a new strategy here, John. This was something, you know, we were reporting on uh, in the weeks uh, leading up to the White House actually releasing uh, their version of, of that transcript of that phone call. Uh, that the president uh, had with the president of Ukraine. Uh, But now Trump is out there publicly uh, calling for other countries uh, to investigate the Bidens, to investigate his political opponents. So what he's doing really is normalizing it. He's just making it seem like a a normal thing that any president would do. And therefore, uh, his Republican uh, colleagues in the Senate are in lockstep with him. Catherine, I want to go back to something you said before, that there were no White House officials 
on the Sunday shows this weekend. What is their strategy going forward? Look, I think that's a good question. John and I were talking a little bit about that and the strategy inside the White House. I know uh, from sources that I've been talking to that they want people like Jim Jordan out there on the shows, the president's biggest defenders. The word that I've heard from White House sources is people who can go on there and and be fighters. Uh, That's what the president wants to see. Um, But John, we've talked about this strategy going forward just broadly with impeachment. And and we know that they're going to have an outside team. The lawyers are going to be there. But it doesn't seem like too much inside the White House is actually changing with their approach. Well, no, there's no war room. I mean, we've we've heard that time and time again for now. I mean, could they eventually have to need or get a war room? Sure. I mean, we just have to see how this all um, plays out. But but I don't think they're uh, panicked in the way that we would think they were, or at least the president's trying to not make it seem that way, um, that they are building a new infrastructure. But what they do need, though, Chris, and and, it, and it's pretty amazing that it hasn't happened yet, they do need somebody to get out there and, and be the Sarah Sanders of this story, right. if you will, right? Like she was always out there uh, doing uh, Fox News hits or at least cable hits. She'd occasionally pop up in the briefing room, at least in the early part of Mueller. We've really not seen that with anyone. We've not seen uh, the new White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, or her deputies out there. We have not seen Kellyanne Conway, who is a uh, obvious frequent fighter on behalf of the president on cable TV. We have not seen her um, out there on this issue. And as far as the, the legal team is concerned, you know, it's interesting that Right now, they're still trying to figure out um, how much this involves the president as an individual. And that's where we're going to have to wait and see the role of the lawyers here, because they are trying to rebuild that infrastructure they had under Mueller, um, towards the end anyway, with uh, Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow. Uh, Rudy's been out there doing the cable hits. I think every time it's just sort of confused things a little more. And I do think a question right now that many are raising is, is that effective? Is Rudy out there helping the cause or is he just mucking this up? And I think that's where we're going to have to see, do they change things? Do they bring more people in? Uh, you know, One of the things that's been discussed is do they add uh, another press secretary that just does comms uh, for this topic uh, to go out there and be the Trump defender or point person on this? That hasn't happened yet. We're just going to have to wait and see where the ball rolls. And then one last thing, because obviously not, you know, Congressman Schiff, who's leading this uh, investigation, has also kind of screwed it up in some ways. He uh, obviously got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post for lying about having contact with the whistleblower, his little parody at the opening of the hearings. I mean, this plays right into kind of taints the investigation. Don't you think that's a mistake? Well, it certainly is. And I think that you saw Nancy Pelosi struggled a bit to defend that when she was asked by George Stephanopoulos just a couple of days ago, you know, was that the right thing to do? And I think that if you look at the committees up there, The thing that I'm most curious to see, and I'm curious what what you think about this, Catherine, is, you know, there was no special select committee appointed here to deal with this, which frankly would have made things easier because it would have been a one-road lane. But now you, you you have a scenario here where you've got six committees, all of whom have people that fought to be class president back in their day. So how are they going to stay in control? And if ship's the one that's leading the charge here, we have to see when the next ones are scheduled. Like I said earlier, all of them right now for these depositions uh, are behind closed doors. But then it's going to come down to what Jim Jordan was talking about with George. Uh, and George also asked uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York who's part of the leadership with 
how are they going to release the information that comes out of those depositions? And if they're being selective with that, that is going to raise more questions and also add to the Republicans' talking points. I think that's right. And I think that Schiff and Nancy Pelosi obviously have a uh, much better relationship than Pelosi and Jerry Nadler, who's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, That committee, uh, Chris, is ultimately going to draft these articles of impeachment. But I I do – it was a rough start as John said, uh, for Adam Schiff in the beginning. However, the way Pelosi's viewing this is at least it's not with Chairman Nadler, right? He, uh, She viewed him having hearings on Mueller, him bringing in aides like Corey Lewandowski. Which was uh, she, a disaster. Which was a disaster. And behind closed doors, uh, she uh, admitted as much. So I agree with John. We have to see you know, how this goes, you know, how it plays out. Obviously, uh, much of this committee's work is behind closed doors. They've been releasing uh, things in, in piecemeal, essentially. Um, but isn't that risky for them? The piecemeal I, gives the argument of that they're hiding something. Completely. I would argue that <laughs> yes, right? And, and if the Republicans did the same thing, I would you know, say that that's also risky from from their perspective. I mean, they the Republicans are calling for the transcript to be released. Schiff hasn't released transcripts of these depositions. Uh, I would say that it's risky because it, you by them doing that, they very clearly are are trying to spin and dictate the narrative that's and, coming and, out. And really what I think should have happened here, Chris, is that Volcker was the first one to go up. We've got several more this week. Uh, uh, Gordon Sutherland, mm-hmm. who's the sitting uh, ambassador to the EU that we wrote about. Uh, you can read more about his uh, his path into the Trump world right now on our website. Um, but, you know, a mega donor got a seat that he was totally unqualified for, never had any uh, foreign affairs diplomatic experience. But he's involved in this Ukraine uh, situation. Uh, Marie Yovanovitch, uh, the former former Ukrainian ambassador that the Trump administration forced out. She's going to be up there at the end of the week. There's questions for them. But I guess what I'm saying is that in a way, maybe don't release the transcripts or any nuggets until this round is done, because all of these people are going to be talking about similar topics. You don't want it to impact somebody's potential testimony. Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts to the story, a lot of things looking ahead. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Investigation. Thanks to our producers, Trevor Hastings, Caitlin Fulmer, Emily Wachowski. Be sure to hit subscribe. Leave us a rating. For John Santucci, Catherine Falders, I'm Chris Flasto, and we'll see you again here next week on The Investigation.